Jumanji, a game for those who seek to find a way to leave their world behind. You roll the dice to move your token, doubles gets another turn, and the first player to reach the end wins. You wanna play? Welcome to the Graveyard Slot, where we talk about movies past their prime time. Here, we revisit old favorites with a fresh perspective to see if they deserve more credit or if they should stay buried. I'm Sohini. And I'm Sarah. And today, we're talking about Jumanji. Jumanji is based on a children's picture book by Chris Van Alsberg. Siblings Judy and Peter find a board game called Jumanji in their new house, only to be sucked into a dangerous game threatening their home, the people around them, and their own lives, but brings back Alan Parrish, the boy who disappeared 26 years ago. This was released in 1995 and directed by Joe Johnston, who is best known for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and... Jurassic Park 3! <laughs> oh god, why am I not at all surprised? <laughs> there were also recent modern sequels in 2017 and 2019, which were both directed by Jake Kasten. So we thought the original Jumanji was somewhat of a classic, so it was a surprise to see that it has a critic rating of 52% on Rotten Tomatoes, while the sequels were rated much higher. We decided to investigate to see whether the 1995 version deserves the slight and what the sequels did better to gain the audience's approval. So in this episode, we will mainly be discussing the original movie, but we will also be covering the 2017 and 2019 sequels. So if you haven't seen them, there will be spoilers. Yeah, I remember this movie being a big deal when I was a kid so I always thought it was really well regarded and I was really surprised at the critics rating but it did scar me when I watched it as a kid <laughs> <laughs> the whole concept was terrifying and the tragedy around Alan made me indescribably upset though I do remember it fondly in that it executed those exact aspects that destroyed me exceptionally well so <laughs> I think it deserves at least a 90 just for that just for the childhood trauma <laughs> Yeah, I myself don't really remember this movie that much. Most of it probably went over my head when I saw it as a kid. So I didn't really retain any of it and didn't leave much of an impact on me. You weren't even scared? I feel like so many people have this experience of like at least being scared of Jumanji. No, I guess I was really brave. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, show off. I mean, I did watch and recommend 13 going on 30, so what do you <laughs> expect? But yeah, I also did think that it was a classic and I thought it would be much better regarded than it seems to be, especially, you know, starring Robin Williams and everything. Well, one of the less than stellar reviews that I found was from Washington Post and it reads, the technology both overwhelms the human cast and stalls the narrative drive. Even Williams's manic energy finally flags. Ouch. I half agree with this review because I don't think the technology overtakes the movie. It's part of the charm of the movie and I don't think it took up too much of it. However, I do agree that sometimes it does stall the narrative. But those are two different things. It does at times kind of stop the plot in its tracks, but... I don't think it has anything to do with like the special effects. I think it was just the writing. I would go so far as to say that without the technology, there wouldn't be much of a narrative at all. It definitely creates a very distinct feel to the movie and it definitely wouldn't be the same without the special effects. And maybe it is the case that they rely on it a little bit too much because if we put it aside, I'm not sure exactly how much is left in terms of plot. I feel like the quote-unquote special effects, that's not 
a French element. My comment was more so what do they do with the game? They just rely too much on having special effects and just getting to include all these crazy things in the plot to make it interesting. Like there's no actual story. I think it is the meat of the story, but that's like kind of the point. Like the point of this movie is to see these actors like fuck with the special effects. It's to be able to create this piece of art that's like the giant plant and have it fight with our characters in the narrative. Yeah, I mean, I kind of understand what you're saying, but it feels like they took such a free hand with the special effects that it's just like, how do we get from one effect to the next? I think where we differ actually is, to me, that's a feature of the movie instead of a bug. I can see that. The review I found was from Variety, and it says, What's missing is a soul for this mechanical marvel. I actually disagree with this one. The complaints that I had were against the plot, but I do think that this movie does a really great job with the characters and their relationships, especially the relationship between Alan and his dad. If you take away the special effects, if you take away everything really, what remains is, in my opinion, a rather bare plot, but a really interesting exploration of a father-son relationship. And it makes for, I thought, a pretty soulful character. So I didn't really agree with this review. Yeah. As usual, we'll be discussing this movie chronologically. And we start with the opening scene, which is set in 1869. There are these two kids burying the Jumanji board game somewhere. And then we jump to 1969 where Alan Parrish is on his bike being chased by bullies and he goes to the Parachute Company which is a factory that his dad owns. I think his introduction is really well done. It's very simple. He's just cycling through the town, but he's greeting everyone by name and everyone really seems to like him. But it seems that he's somewhat of an outcast among his own peers because, as you said, the bullies start chasing him and his first instinct is to escape instead of facing them. And so I think they set up a very clear idea of who he is as a person and the trajectory that his character develops will take yeah but when his dad finally finds out that he's there because he's being chased by bullies all his dad says is like you should just stand up to them like basically like don't be such a wimp yeah next he'll be telling him not to cry <laughs> <laughs> i do like that we get the sympathetic take on alan as a kid but at the same time we find out that alan can be careless and not very kind because he seems to be friendly with one of the workers at the factory named carl and basically carl has this shoe design and alan leaves it lying around and gets it eaten up and shredded by a machine which you know halts all production and when they're looking for like who the fuck is being really careless at a fucking factory alan doesn't own up and carl has to take the blame and i like that we do start with like alan isn't necessarily great kid <laughs> i think it ties in really well with his dad urging him to be brave because we see instances where you know he tries to face his bullies for example when his dad urges him to but when his dad doesn't know he doesn't necessarily always follow that same advice and i think it's great that he's a morally great character because that's where we have space for him to grow and become better i also think that it's ironic that this factory is his safe 
space when his dad reiterates that it's actually very dangerous for him to hang around there because it's like the same cause for him being an outcast is his protection as well which I think also explains his complex relationship with his dad I mean we come to see that they do love each other but there's also a fundamental inability to understand each other and I think that's what this movie does really well in exploring yeah for sure it's definitely the heart of the movie but outside Alan gets beat up by the bullies and after they leave he goes into this construction site where he hears a drumming and follows it to this buried board game Jumanji and he takes it home so that evening Alan's dad is proud of him for standing up to the bullies even if he got beaten up in the process I don't think Alan stood up to the bullies I think that's like the main problem here the bullies just finally caught up to Alan and finally beat him up but when he goes to his parents for help his father is just like oh good you finally faced them there's that element of generational pride, right? We're all parishes and we have to be and behave a certain way. And maybe he's just seeing his kid the way that he wants to. And even if the reality is very different, he's just not really bothered to look beyond the surface, I guess. It just underlines the fact that his dad won't listen to him because it's not like he lied. That's very true. But yeah, the dad just says that Alan took it like a man. Ugh. You know, on the subject of generational pride, they tell Alan that they're about to send him to a boarding school. But Alan doesn't want to go, so he mouths off to his dad and says, like, if you love it so much, why don't you live in it? And the dad is like, <laughs> I did. <laughs> Because he had just finished talking about how he went there and his father went there and blah blah blah. <laughs> Another aspect of Alan's relationship with his parents that I liked is how they portrayed that his parents don't really seem to understand the pressures that he faces as someone who comes from this background of immense privilege. Because they seem to think of it as like a great thing that he would be living in a hall named after his forefathers but obviously to him that's really embarrassing so I just really like the theme of generational pride and tradition and the behaviors that come with it as well that Alan throughout the movie is learning how to unlearn and the ways that he's trying to deal with this making him an outcast among his peers yeah but he's really upset about possibly being sent away and he decides to run away so he's just about to go when a friend of his shows up named Sarah and he instead decides to invite her to play the board game that he'd found earlier and basically it says that it's a game for people who want to escape and they actually don't start the game they just accidentally do and Alan immediately says the game thinks I rolled which freaks Sarah out understandably so I actually found it really interesting that it's not even a conscious choice for them to start playing it just happens really inadvertently and I like how the game pieces snap into place by themselves instead of them placing it on because it's almost as if the choice to start playing isn't really in the player's hands it's like the game has some sort of control over it all and the drum beat almost sounds like a heartbeat like it's a living thing so the game specifically attracts it seems like at this point kids 
who want to escape their circumstances. And the key word here is attract because Alan starts hearing the drums when he still hadn't discovered Jumanji. And it's what calls him towards the board game and what causes him to take it with him and what causes him to open it. So it's definitely out of the kids' hands. It's like they can't help it. Jumanji is luring these kids and trapping them in the game. And I feel like, especially as we go on and we meet Judy and Peter, it's like Jumanji is specifically attracting a certain kind of kid maybe someone who doesn't have a solid support system or someone who doesn't have adults looking out for them and to me it feels like an allegory for like certain systems that take advantage of disadvantaged kids and lure them into this trap that's you know really hard to get out of Mm -hmm. and in this vein i think it would have been nice to also get some insight into why Sarah can hear it because she just sort of appears and starts playing but we don't really ever understand what it is about her life that she wants to escape. We barely get to know anything about Sarah and I think that's why Sarah is the weakest point of this movie and the weakest character. I really dislike the writing for her character and just her character in general and I think that's what it is because we don't get to know anything real about her. We don't even know why she was chosen by Jumanji. Yeah, agreed. After the role there's always like a couplet or a saying that shows up on the board game and sarah says something about wings and meanwhile alan says in the jungle you must wait until the dice read five or eight and then he gets sucked into the board game and it's very traumatizing to look at i'm sure and sarah starts freaking out and then bats come for her and that's how alan perish perishes (laughs) how long were you waiting to make that joke Sarah runs screaming after that and there's no rolling five or eight or anything. (laughs) And next thing we know, it's 26 years later. We get the shot of the handles on the front door to indicate the passage of time. And I really like the way that was done because the shine of them dulls and the wood of the door ages. And it also shows how the doors have stayed shut for a long time as well. And this is where we meet Judy and Peter, whose aunt is turning the parish house into a bed and breakfast. We learn that Judy and Peter have lost their parents, and Judy likes telling tall tales. That's a fun way of saying she's a compulsive liar. And Peter doesn't really talk to people, apart from his sister. I think it's a pretty good foundation for their characters, especially for Judy. I really liked the way that they established her character by having her mess with the realtor and tell this (laughs) tragic tale (laughs) that's like 99.9% lie. But the first traces of Jumanji that we get is actually Peter seeing bats in the attic. And this is our first hint that the consequences of Jumanji is still sticking around all these years later. They also find out that the town believes Alan was murdered and rumor goes his dad did it. But even the town seems to know that the dad is... I can't tell if the dad is supposed to be abusive or not. I just thought that he didn't listen. But I mean, they did make him into the personification of a hunter and everything, so... If it gets to a point where your kid is in a magical land haunted by this relationship with his dad, I think it's crossed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They have a really nice moment that night where Judy 
crawls into her brother's bed and they kind of take comfort in each other. It's clear that they're very close because the little brother does open up to her, whereas he's very shut off when he's with anybody else. They took the effort to develop the relationships between these characters and I think that makes all the difference. That night they start hearing the drumming of the board game. They hear the drumming again in the morning and after the ant leaves for work, they finally go to investigate and find the board game in the attic and they start to play it. So at this point, we have met our main characters and this is where we get to the heart of the story as well when they start playing Jumanji. So I guess this would be a good time to bring up the sequels and talk about their introductions of the characters and the game. Both the sequels feature basically the same group of characters characters. It starts off immediately with four people and we go through their lives one by one until they all end up at the same detention. There were some fun little details here and there to establish their distinct personalities. Like for example, we have Spencer who is the main character I guess and so we see him putting hand sanitizer on and he treats it like cologne. <laughs> this bothered you so much. I was appalled. <laughs> But we get a handful of fun details like this. But overall, it just felt quite flat and cliched to me, especially the portrayal of Bethany, who is, you know, your typical popular high school girl. Of course, she's blonde and she's beautiful and she's obsessed with Instagram and can't put her phone down for three seconds. The fact that we can pretty much label these four main characters into the popular girl, the jock, the nerd, and the loner, I mean, I think that just goes to show that I don't think these characters, at least during their introductions, have the same level of nuance that Alan did because he's very quickly established as a really complex character. And I don't think the sequels did as great a job with these main characters. It feels like in the original Jumanji, it's like an already established world with people and existing relationships, whereas in the new one, it feels like let's start with these stereotypes and learn to find out what's underneath and to find out that they are real people because they do a good enough job of fleshing them out throughout the movie, which is like a fine enough take on it. I just don't find it as interesting because I don't feel that way in the new Jumanji when we're dealing with Spencer and Fridge's relationship because they are former childhood friends who now have kind of grown apart. And when we get into that whole mess, it feels like that has more depth. That's a great observation. In the new Jumanji, they get sucked in instead into a video game, which I thought at first I would think like, that's lame. I want the board game. But it's actually really cool and they get to play with these video game conventions. I would say like to an even larger extent than original Jumanji did with board game conventions because they do a little, like they talk about how you have to roll again if you get a double and blah 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 but like that's kind of it. Whereas in this one, we get a more playful take on video games. Yeah, I actually like this concept better that they get sucked into the game because my main issue with Jumanji the board game was why don't they just stop playing while the consequences are minimal? Because say you release some bats into the world and yeah, they don't belong in that climate, but you can still deal with it. But like they just 
keep playing and keep playing and making it worse and worse and it just doesn't make as much sense to me as when you're trapped in this completely different world and you have to keep playing to get out of there. I think the stakes are a lot higher in that case. So I really liked this take on the game and, you know, subverting what the original one did. I completely agree with you. Although, now that I think about it, here's my take on it. If the Jumanji board game is supposed to be an allegory for certain systems or societal structures or whatever in the real world, then maybe it's supposed to be like, you know, you always think you can just do a little more or like you don't know how deep you're in until it's gone too bad. I think maybe that translates well enough into why the kids keep playing yeah fair but i do agree with you because like in the movie judy and peter really really feel like they need to fix this by playing the game and finishing it and to them in the moment it feels like a big deal (laughs) you know these are kids so like to them the biggest thing right now is getting in trouble with their guardian and i feel like that is a great allegory because you do certain things that may be inadvisable, but you just need to get to either it's, you know, the next meal or the next paycheck or whatever it is, and then it'll get fixed and then you can move on. But that's not how things will go when you're dealing with predatory things like Jumanji. <laughs> yeah, I think the sequels just had a different take. Yeah, this isn't a bad thing about the sequels, but I think the sequels have Jumanji as a tool for the characters to grow, which is a good thing. You know, these movies are more character-driven than you would expect, and it's great. But Jumanji is just a different narrative tool in the sequels than it is in the original. Yeah, I got the sense that Jumanji as an entity was much more malicious in the first movie because I think Judy has a line that goes along the lines of, you know, we have to fix this so we'll keep playing and there's no skill involved anyway. This game is literally just about rolling the dice and then waiting on chance for whatever horror is coming next. Whereas the way it's portrayed in the sequels, it's more like it's challenging you to grow and to realize your strengths and who you are as a person. And it feels much more helpful. (laughs) Yeah. It's more like a quest that you're like graced with. Yeah, it's like in those movies when parents send their kids off to camp and they're like, (laughs) you know, you have to expand your horizons instead of like Saw. (laughs) Yeah. And the characters in the sequels are like traumatized by it, but I'm not scared of Jumanji in the sequels. It's just a very different Jumanji. So I do think that the allegory that I was talking about doesn't translate to the sequels. In the sequels, the characters are way better off after Jumanji. And in the original, they're not. Considering everything, the approach that they took and the tone of the movie, I think this portrayal of Jumanji just worked. Like, it's not bad, it's just different. One thing that we missed is that one of the introductions is of a kid in 1996 who first gets sucked into Jumanji. Yes. So the first kid isn't actually Spencer and his friends, but this kid named Alex, we learn later. And the fact that he finds, or like rather his dad, finds the game in 1996 Alan did such a bad job of getting rid of Jumanji. Meanwhile, before him, it was (laughs) hidden back in the 1800s and he didn't find it until 69. Like, Alan, do you know how bad of a job you've done? I mean, they throw it into a river at the end 
I think. Also, like, in the river? That's Things get fished out of the river all the fucking time. <laughs> yeah. Definitely could have done better. Yeah. Also, I don't love how that introduction is made. It's like you said, it feels like the characters are way more well-established in the original because in the sequels, we get to know them through the game, whereas in the original, we get to know them before the game. I think this shows one of the strengths of the original movie that when we see them outside of the game, they're still really interesting, engaging characters. They're nuanced characters. Whereas here in the sequels, outside the game, they're just sort of stereotypes and especially with Alex as well I also wanted to know why he wanted to escape his life we don't even know why it tracks Bethany I feel like it's necessary for video game Jumanji to still have that rule that it's like for people who want to escape but I don't think it actually works because like we have discussed it's actually about bettering people it's not about luring certain types of people and trapping them yeah I think it's like the game picks you because the game thinks you have something about yourself you need to improve. Because I think this is reflected in the characters that they appear as in the game. Because the characters they're assigned have meaning. And I think more so in the first sequel than in the second one. Because the characters they're assigned in the game allow them to move away from the assumptions they have about themselves to discover and use their strengths. So for example, Fridge, who is very dependent on his strong physique, doesn't have that in this game. But when they get in a tight spot, he applies football strategy, which allows them to tackle the villain. And Bethany is portrayed as quite charming as her usual self, but as a middle-aged man in the game, she teaches what she knows to Martha. To middling success. To, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like the game helps them to realize parts of themselves that they didn't know were there, you know? Fridge was relying on Spencer to write his essays for him because he thinks he's not smart enough, but maybe through this game, they realize that they underestimated themselves. And I would have liked to see this carried through in the second movie but it kind of feels like maybe not all the characters went through that same development i think martha definitely did because in the beginning she was kind of not really confident in herself but i think this game really helped her to step out of her shell but i didn't really see that development in bethany and fridge when they go back to the human world they're like back to themselves i think the game is a great narrative tool in the new ones but and it hurts me to say this. They should have not had Jumanji's for those who want to escape. Because it doesn't make any sense with the new take on Jumanji. I agree. But the first obstacle that Jumanji throws at Judy and Peter in the original are bugs. And they read that the consequences of Jumanji won't go away until they finish the game. So they keep playing. And the next thing that shows up are monkeys. And they wreck more of the house. <laughs> <laughs> and so they keep going. And the next thing they bring out of Jumanji is a full-on lion and so they get chased through the house until something suddenly leaps out of the shadows and it's Alan Parrish all grown up beard and everything he's looking a little worse for wear a little <laughs> <laughs> it seems like he really has been living in the jungle for 26 years Peter actually rolled one of the numbers that Alan needed to come back and it's heartbreaking that Alan still remembers those numbers. Yeah. It is interesting to me. The fact that the house at this point 
is cleaned up because of the ant. And so when Alan comes back, it almost looks like his house still. It doesn't look、mm. run down. If Alan had come back and it looks the way it had, then he would immediately know this isn't home anymore and this place is abandoned. And like maybe not the fact that his parents have passed, but like that they're not here anymore. But now he comes back literally to the house looking the same way he left it, or like close enough. And so he's immediately transplanted into not only the place that he left, but the moment that he left. Yeah, you're right. It's almost like he's given this false sense of security until it's taken away from him. That makes it even more tragic. Damn it, Sarah. <laughs> He starts celebrating that he's home, and he calls for his parents, and it is so heartbreaking. And the way it's played is not at all for jokes. It's just so sad. He finds out soon enough that the kid's aunt has bought this place, and so he sets off to find his parents. Right outside is Carl, the man that he was friendly with at the factory, and he's a policeman now. And you know, Alan looks quite peculiar. <laughs> so Carl's very suspicious of him, and Judy gets them out of it by lying her ass off. I took it upon myself to count all the ways that Carl's car suffers.、Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Carl's car goes through it in this movie.、It、reminded me of Jackson and Hannah Montana. I think Jumanji has a particular vendetta against Alan and Carl's car. In this scene, first of all, we have Alan jumping up on it, and then the monkeys fire a shotgun through the roof. So that's ways one and two. More coming up. And the monkeys <laughs> drive off in the car. <laughs> At least it distracts him from Alan and the kids. Seriously, throughout this movie, all he's doing is like chasing his car <laughs>、yeah. most of the time. Alan does get away, and he goes to the factory that is also abandoned. On his way there, actually, he sees that the city is not. Doing as well as it used to. A lot of businesses are closed down. A lot of people are not doing so well, and someone is squatting in the office of the factory. And he is very kind to Alan, and he explains that. Everything else in the town kind of went downhill after the factory folded because Alan's dad put all of his money into finding Alan, and you know it never paid off. Which is very sad because it seems like this is the first time Alan finds out how much his dad loves him and cares for him. I think the scene with the man showing Alan so much kindness when he doesn't even know who he is. I think that's one more instance of this movie being much more human centric and much more focused on the relationships between the characters compared to the sequels because. If we just look at the story beats of all the movies compared to each other, this might seem a little bit out of place because in the sequels they pretty much jump into the game very quickly, and then we're just involved in that throughout. But here, I think we take these moments where they're not playing the game, and it's just sort of the characters interacting with each other, and I think it does a lot to add more depth. To the characters, it also helps that you're in the real world because in the sequels, it would feel kind of pointless if they were just suddenly not actively trying to win the game. <laughs> which there were moments of that in the sequels that I don't like. Same. Which happened more in the 2019 sequel, and they have like these little character moments when they're not doing anything. And in those moments, I'm like, what are you guys? Doing just to win the game. <laughs> In real life, you would need. 
to take a break, but it doesn't seem like that's an issue for them in the video game, especially because we have gone through this in the 2017 sequel and there weren't really moments like that. Like there were some, but they weren't super long. And this is why I think I like the 2017 sequel better because I think they weaved the character growth with the progression of the video game quite well. Whereas in the 2019 sequel, they needed to find these moments to take a break to have those character moments. And it happened less naturally. You're right. I also think the character development in the second movie, they had multiple different strands with different characters interacting with each other and they wove that together as well so that it wasn't like one thing had to be resolved at a time. But in the third movie, I think they didn't manage to do that well either. It felt very much like they had one storyline that they wanted to neatly tie up in a bow before they could move on to the second one, which then meant that they spent much more time on one than they did on the other. It just ended up kind of doing a disservice to some of the characters. Yeah. So Alan finds out that his parents have passed away. And I think it's at this point that, I mean, we know that he's been stuck in this game for 26 years, but we haven't really seen him in this jungle but i think in this scene we can slowly get an idea of how much his life has really changed because of the game and i think they do this pretty well through the way it's shot as well because when he was a kid there was this shot where he was looking out of the factory window at the bullies down on the ground and it was a good indication of his station you know because of his family background and also showed his distance from his peers and here in this scene they turn this around where we are the ones looking down at Alan coming up to the factory and we see him through the broken window and he looks totally dwarfed by this giant abandoned building that used to be his safe space and that he still runs to when he doesn't know where else to go and when once he goes into the factory and he sees it's been abandoned, he picks up something from the ground and I think it's this part of a shoebox or something, but it's got the parish logo on it. And when he picks it up, the dirt and dust falls off it the same way that it did when he found Jumanji and dug it up. And again, I think it shows how the tables have turned because now he's unearthing these remnants of his own life the way he unearthed Jumanji all those years ago. except. To him, it probably wasn't even all that long ago. Everything has just turned on its head because of this game. That's an amazing read. You're absolutely right. But yeah, Alan visits his parents' grave and it's a heartbreaking thing that the kids now have in common with Alan. But they try to convince Alan to help them finish the game so that they can get rid of the consequences. And Alan is completely against it, which is very understandable. And another thing that I found really interesting that I initially thought is yet another trait he has kept from being mentally stuck as a child. The fact that he can be goaded into something because Peter kind of taunts him into agreeing to play the game. And he calls him, basically he calls him a scaredy cat. And at first it seems like it's working on Alan. But then the scene goes on and he reiterates how awful Jumanji can be and he really is the leading expert on the worst of consequences that Jumanji can bring and he has this whole monologue about how he knows real fright and 
Yes, he is ultimately goaded into it, but that's not because he's actually afraid. Because he's right, he's not afraid. He's brave because he knows how bad it is, and yet he is still gonna be witness to this. And I love the way that whole scene plays out because you see this in Peter's face too. But like at first, you think they have him, you know, and even though he does go along with what they want. Now it is no longer a weakness of Alan's that he is pulled into this game. It is rather a strength that after everything, he will once more go into the lion's den. And I thought that was a great character moment for everybody. Yeah, I think that's a great interpretation of that moment. I think I had a somewhat different perception. It totally made sense to me that Alan would be incensed when Peter accuses him of being afraid because this is a sensitive spot for him considering his history with his dad. And yeah, it does also make sense that he's annoyed because he knows better than anyone how terrible this game really is. But I think it is undeniable that this accusation also ties into his image as a child and everything that his dad told him about facing things he's afraid of and especially considering the fact that he's been stuck in this one place for 26 years and so hasn't really had the chance to mentally and emotionally develop in a stable way. I do think that a part of him is still that child that doesn't want to be perceived as cowardly because that's what his dad encouraged of him. So for me this was more that he's still in that place mentally i see that too another thing i like about this scene is i saw it in a lot of ways as a moment where we see that alan has grown when he says he knows real fright it's like he always thought fright was that feeling in his stomach when he saw bullies when he saw his dad when he faced all of these things but now he knows that was nothing <laughs> the whole concept of fright has changed for him and grown and I thought that was a really great detail in either reading I think that is present there yeah so they do try to play the game but when they roll Jumanji doesn't do anything and they realize it's not their turn it's Sarah's turn because this is the same game from 1969 and they go to the house where Sarah used to live Sarah doesn't react well <laughs> to Alan showing up on her doorstep and Alan just sort of manhandles and threatens her into playing, basically. And I suppose a part of it could be his lack of social skills, considering he's been trapped in a jungle for 26 years. But a smarter way to make her play would have been nice. The way Alan was persuaded told us a lot about his character, but I think we're continuing this thread of not really knowing anything about Sarah or her motivations or anything. Yeah. When Alan is talking to Sarah through the gap in her door, it shot really tight on his face. It comes out quite terrifying. <laughs> he has this really somber, serious look on his face. And it's clear that, you know, he's taking this very seriously. And I really like this thread we get of Alan's resentment towards Sarah. And in the shot that I'm talking about, you can see kind of the anger in him. It feels like he's this ghost from Sarah's past coming back to haunt her and not only that but here for revenge is a very simplistic way of putting it but it's coming back to bite her in the ass right and it's quite a sinister start to their relationship and 
like you said, he kind of forces her into joining the game. And the part where he tricks her into rolling the dice, it was a smart trick, but it was a devious trick. Yeah. Like, they don't play it as a, like, victorious thing for the viewer. He laughs in her face. (laughs) And it feels like bit by bit, he's getting back at her, sort of. And he doesn't quite have any remorse. And I don't blame him, by the way. I think this is a great thread for Alan's character. And this behavior of Alan's towards Sarah is consistent throughout the movie until it suddenly isn't. But (laughs) up until then, (laughs) I really like this idea that Alan's grown so much in the time that we didn't see him and he's become much more cruel in a way. And because of the fact that he knows how bad Jumanji is, he will go to extreme measures to finish this quest. And if that means putting Sarah through the hell that he went through, he definitely will do that with joy, with this satisfaction. Yeah, I actually hadn't thought about it that way, but that's actually really interesting. It's almost like, you know, when you're playing a regular board game, not a killer board game, (laughs) if you're on the losing end, sometimes you become annoyed and a sore loser, basically. This is like a more extreme version of that because of all the horrific things Alan has had to face. The way that you read it, it's like even more subtle ways of showing the way that this game has taken over his life and over his identity because he's basically lost everything that he felt towards Sarah and it's more that she's just another tool now for him to finish the game. And while it's a great way of developing Alan's character, I think they totally missed out on developing Sarah's character because I didn't like her attitude one bit. I think there was no nuance there. Maybe if Sarah had tried to make things right, if she had been even a little bit more remorseful even, it would have made her a more sympathetic character. And I mean, I could sort of begin to see her perspective because they were both alone in this 26 years, but she doesn't seem to understand that Alan's situation was fundamentally different to hers. She almost, I think, implies that Alan had it coming or something, which was appalling. (laughs) You know, that part where Sarah equates what she went through with what Alan went through is so tone deaf. Yeah, they made her insufferable. And then to go on and imply that she and Alan start liking each other in the middle of all this chaos is just ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Suddenly they fall into each other's arms and romance happens. And it's like, oh, you're better than this Jumanji. Come on. Yeah, at least address all the trauma between the two of them before anything happens. But it's like all it takes is one man and one woman and that's it (laughs) relationship formed compare this for example to the sequels where Spencer and Martha end up developing a romantic relationship. And it works, you know, the fact that they learn about each other through this journey and they develop a bond, it works well enough. So you could do that. And I do quite like it, but that doesn't happen between Alan and Sarah. My general opinion is that the first movie did better in terms of character relationships, but definitely when it comes to the romantic aspect, I think the second movie did do better. I just think it's a shame that it seemed like they didn't really put that much effort into this relationship in the third movie. So what happens there is that the characters go back into the video game 
but there are two new characters, one of whom is Spencer's grandfather, Eddie, and Eddie's friend, Milo. I thought they were such a fantastic addition to the cast. The trouble with this is that they spend a lot of time developing the friendship between Eddie and Milo and they have a lot of history that they deal with throughout the story and so I think that's done really well but as a consequence of that they don't have as much time for Martha and Spencer but they still try to shoehorn it in anyway. They start off with Spencer all morose because his long distance relationship with Martha isn't working but then it's like they're trying to make this person the main character in the story when he's not. Like to me Eddie and Milo are the main focus of this story and so they still try to shove this last minute thing with Martha and Spencer in there and they're in the middle of climbing this ice wall when out of nowhere they start having this heart to heart about what went wrong and it was lost for words yeah it's ridiculous <laughs> ridiculous doesn't even begin to cover it my problem with the whole scene is actually the conversation itself. I think the first sequel actually did a pretty good job of taking pretty simple concepts or issues and even if they don't dive too deep into it, <laughs> they didn't do this either. Like It's such a superficial take and Spencer's just like speaking his feelings. He was like, well, I was feeling this way and I was feeling this way and Martha's like, well, this is the solution. So now we're okay, right? They're like, that's not how it works. <laughs> and I quite like the idea that in this second sequel, Spencer is depressed and he voluntarily goes into Jumanji, which is like all around stupid, but it is a compelling story. It's almost like an allegory for being suicidal, right? Even if we don't go that far, it's wanting to be somebody else. It's finding your own life so bleak that you would rather live in this video game. I think the whole thing is really interesting and the fact that he goes in there and he is this character that isn't Dr. Bravestone, who he wanted to be, who is this really buff guy. And instead, he's, I think, like a burglar of some kind. A cat burglar. We have all this setup that's really interesting. And the dissolution of his relationship with Martha is a consequence of his depression. So the fix doesn't actually tackle the main issue. Yeah. Also, they don't even really follow the thread of Spencer being in the body of a cat burglar instead of what he came into the game wanting. Yeah. Oh, and it was such a good device. They just kind of don't do anything. <laughs> I also was excited to see Spencer as this character that he definitely did not want to be. And I really thought that just like in the first movie, they have been given characters that they need at this point in time. And I really thought that there was a reason that he is this character that's so similar to him. It makes so much sense with the theme of this movie, but they trot all over this by allowing the characters to switch around and choose which characters they want to be. And like you said, with Martha and Spencer, they don't really deal with the issues at all. And the fact that he's bravestone while he has this conversation it's like he's got that shield again that he wanted that makes it easier for him to open up but what happens when you go back into the real life and you don't have that anymore this game could have been such a great vehicle for him to deal with these issues but i think the rest of the plot got in the way on that subject, I think the fact that they can just switch around bodies voluntarily is the point where like Jumanji has become even less and less threatening. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes less of an obstacle and more of 
a vehicle for our characters to have an adventure that they have fun in instead of a looming threat. And I quite dislike that. I think the first sequel walks the line perfectly between less scary but still definitely very dangerous and the second sequel I think loses its footing halfway through. You're right. If we're talking about the characters in the third movie, I think they just had one too many characters and a super obvious fix would have been to not have Alex in this one, but they shoved him in the cast anyway. And as a consequence, Bethany ends up as a horse. I wasn't a fan of Bethany in the beginning, but as the movie went on, I started to really like her character. I thought they did a great job. And so this time around, I thought she would save all of them, honestly, because the way they were going with the two grandpas, they were losing <laughs> lives <laughs> so quick. I was like, okay, Bethany's gonna come in and save them all. But they made her into a horse. And that was just... <laughs> just... I think the horse was just, it was a cop-out. Whichever character they didn't want to deal with at the moment, they turned into the horse. So initially it was Bethany, and then when the body switching happened, they made Milo into the horse. And at this point, he and Eddie had sorted out their issues. So it's almost like, okay, we're done and dusted. We're done with that storyline. So we're going to shove him into this character who can't speak now into that role. It felt like they didn't treat the characters with the respect that they deserve honestly but yeah with bethany i like the idea that initially she's portrayed as very superficial but we see more of her character and it's like these things that we automatically dismiss as superficial can also exist as a part of a well-rounded character like just because she's attached to her phone doesn't mean she doesn't have other aspects to her character either yeah same in the original Jumanji, it's Alan's turn and he brings about a hunter of some kind and he calls the hunter Van Pelt, who immediately starts shooting and chases Alan out of the house. Actually, when he comes back around to the house, Sarah kind of like gives him a hard time about like, why does this Van Pelt dude hate you so much? Alan says this line, something to the effect of, how do I know everything about me offends him? I don't understand the guy. And this is a really interesting thing we learned about Van Pelt. But they keep taking their turns and what comes out next is a whole stampede of rhinos and elephants and zebras and a pelican that actually steals the board game away from them. Yeah, it's interesting that Alan blames Peter for not rescuing the game when just moments before they were trying to escape and run for their lives. And it's almost like the game becomes bigger than all of them, you know, more important than their own lives. And Peter does end up risking his own life to save it in the next scene. At this point, they run into Carl. So Alan lets himself get arrested so that Van Pelt won't actually get to him and while this is happening Peter is trying to take his turn and the next time we check on him he's slowly turning into a monkey I think I love that story because they're like Peter what did you do did you try to cheat and he's like no I just tried to make it land on 12 <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot going on at this point basically there's mayhem in the town because all of Jumanji's creatures are wreaking havoc and the kids and Sarah find themselves in a bit of a hostage situation in the supermarket because Van Pelt wants to take the board game as bait. Alan gets there 
And we have some Home Alone style hijinks. <laughs> the way Alan gets there, though, is the interesting part because he is in the car with Carl, and he finally confesses his identity. He tells Carl who he is, and it's this really nice moment where Alan finally apologizes to Carl, you know, for not owning up to being the one who like halted production at the factory. Yeah, and got Carl fired. It definitely must have been a moment of closure for him. But yes, they do. Get out of Van Pelt's clutches, so they get back to the house, which is where we get kind of our final shebang. Before we get there, there's this moment between Alan and Peter, where you know Alan has learned that Peter tried to cheat, and that's why he's half monkey at this point. And I do like that Alan first resorts to his dad's usual method of being harsh with Peter and telling him off. But then he realizes that that's not so great. As we were discussing before, it's that idea of the things you inherit from the previous generations. And it's not just wealth and your name and whatever. It's also these behaviors that sometimes you have to unlearn. And it's kind of nice to see Alan slip up and then consciously change his approach and be more sympathetic. And it's like he's being to Peter what his dad couldn't be to him. Yeah. In that moment, he must suddenly remember what it feels like to be in Peter's shoes. And what you need in that moment isn't like tough love or anything, but compassion and forgiveness and comfort. The fact that he repeats the words face it like a man which is like one of the last things his father said to him and the fact that he articulates specifically that he doesn't want to turn into his father it's just like a thread that is so strong throughout the film we see it in the final showdown as well and at this point they've already faced more obstacles namely a flash flood and the house being taken over by vines the whole house looks like a jungle by this point and it's almost like the jungle in jumanji is following alan out and if we go along the lines with the allegory you were talking about before right the game representing this thing that you fall into and you don't realize the true extent of it until you're too deep into it it's almost like alan is trying to escape and he's physically out but it's still following him he still can't truly escape it yeah at the very end of all of this van pelt shows back up and it's this one-on-one -on -one showdown between alan and van pelt when van pelt first appears the text on the board game says a hunter from the darkest wild makes you feel just like a child i think that says a lot because he's grown up in this time but when he's faced with van pelt he's that child again it's like he can't escape that mindset and that situation and it's always going to make him feel powerless. That couplet that Jumanji spews out, it's clear that he has been through 20 years of horrors and his darkest horror is still his relationship with his father, which by now is clear is what Van Pelt personifies. Yeah, I think now would be a good time to mention that Van Pelt and Alan's dad are both played by the same actor. <laughs> I feel like the realization dawns on the audience slowly as well. But in this final showdown, he says something to the effect of, I'm setting up for myself now and I'm facing you. And I do like that the fact that the dad has been saying like, be brave, you just gotta face it about like bullies or whatever else in his life. And the real thing that he should be setting up to is his own father. And Van Pelt actually responds to him with the line, 
you're finally acting like a man. Ugh. The same way his father would have. Right. And I think it's actually framed, it's like this stark realization of how awful the sentiment is and it's not like a victorious moment it's not like aha he's done it he's brave now he is like a man now it's like Van Pelt is a sad man Alan's father is a sad man for thinking this way because that's all he can say that's all he can parrot when Alan is doing this brave thing and facing the nightmare that is his father and his father's teachings because that is what he's standing up to not just his father but the bullshit that his father spews and it's really great that the scene with Alan and Peter came before this because to the audience it was really apparent that Alan's real moment of growth is when he's unlearning these unhealthy behaviors and letting go of what it means to you know quote be a man and his real moment of strength is when he's being gentle rather than when he's being overbearing and all tough like his dad. As this happens though Alan does the final role and he gets to Jumanji, which is the end of the game. Now that they've won Jumanji and all the consequences disappear, this whole timeline disappears. So they go back to 1969 and they badly dispose of the game. <laughs> <laughs> Alan easily makes up with his dad, who is very nice all of a sudden. And then we jump forward again to when they're adults and now they're married and about to have a baby and they meet Judy and Peter. So the mechanics of the ending are different in the sequel. In the first sequel, they all go back to their respective times and in the second sequel, it ends with, you know, we found out that Milo, one of the older guys, is sick and he decides to stay in the game. And the thing is, in the first sequel, they had a similar thing where Spencer kind of contemplates staying because he likes who he is when he's Dr. Bravestone. And Martha disabuses him of this notion because it's not right. But in the second sequel, Milo chooses to stay and they let him. And it's played as like this beautiful send-off. I was really upset by that. The fact that they even like entertain this idea is ludicrous to me. He's running away from death and you can't do that. And the fact that he's found this loophole to stay in the video game so that he doesn't have to die is yet another issue. Dying is a human experience. They could even explore the whole idea of like, if you can no longer have a human experience, you are no longer human. And that would have been a really interesting topic to touch on. We can't just escape our suffering. It's hard to live, but that's what it means to live. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. And I think this would have been a great place for Spencer's character development to show because he not only had the same temptation in the first sequel, but he also willingly went into this game in this movie. You know, we would hope that throughout this movie, he would come to the realization that he was wrong and that no matter how difficult things get, he can't just escape into this hollow life that's not really his and there's more value in facing whatever's ahead rather than just try to hide behind this fake persona and so him explaining this to Milo would have been such a great full circle moment. That would have been the closing to his arc. Even Eddie, after being Bravestone and having all the dexterity and energy of youth, when he comes back out of the game, he realizes what a privilege it is to grow old. And neither Milo nor Spencer have this same degree of development. And I mean, 
I kind of understood Milo wanting the freedom that he experienced in the game because before he and Eddie were talking about working all their lives and they had very different perceptions of what they wanted to do with retirement because Milo was struggling to find his place in the world. I liked that idea of him finding freedom when he's flying in this game but as a horse didn't really work for me because the scenes with Eddie and Milo were so touching you know when they were working through their issues in their friendship and their relationship was so well done but to have this farewell be between this random dude and a horse it undermined any kind of emotional impact the scene would have and there's this one really easy fix to this and it's to have had the pilot guy play Milo he still would be flying just as a pilot yes you're right and it makes more sense for Eddie to protest as well because they lost each other for so long and they just became friends again and it would make sense for them to want to spend as much time as they have together it's so weird too that Eddie never puts up a fight I need a, like I gotta go my own way what about me what about us what about we've been through moment <laughs> one thing that they don't address is Milo and Eddie saying goodbye to each other as video game characters like it's to me it's like he's seeing his friend for the last time and he's a horse we just can't get over the horse of it all <laughs> I think we said everything that we can wow so, in absurd conclusion, Alan was not the only target of Jumanji. An arguably bigger target than him was Carl's car, <laughs> which got totally battered in the course of this movie. It was driven into a tree by monkeys. The roof got shot through, the door came off, the windshield got shattered, and at the end, the vines folded it in half <laughs> and ate it up in the space of one day. <laughs> I feel like Alan didn't go through that much in the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. So, have your opinions changed? I guess going into this movie, my hopes weren't that high. <laughs> because it's very rare, you know, for a sequel to be rated higher than the original movie. And having watched it now, I think the original movie and the sequels each have their respective strengths. I think plot-wise... I prefer the sequels, actually. I do think that overall they're just more fun and more entertaining. And I think there is more substance there. But when it comes to character development, I definitely give it to the first movie. You know, it might be a movie formed solely of characters and special effects, but it still has its merits. So I do think it deserves a better rating. Yeah, I think I might feel similarly to you. I still don't get why this was rated so low, the original, I mean. Even if it's a bit slow or not as like jam-packed, I think that was pretty on par with other movies in that time period. So like, I don't quite get why this was singled out as like a subpar movie. <laughs> the sequels were so surprisingly good. Yeah, my opinion's haven't really changed. It was a scary, sad movie as a kid. It is still a scary, sad movie as an adult. I highly recommend. It's also like a mindfuck for your brain. I feel like you have to watch the original and the later ones just started and you'll be so entertained you'll keep watching. But the original, you should watch it and like confront all of your, you know, <laughs> childhood trauma. And <laughs> it's also a great performance by a stellar cast. So I would say 
if you're in the mood for a lighthearted, fun watch, definitely the sequels are worth it. And if you're feeling in a stable enough headspace, then yeah, <laughs> I recommend the first one too. Definitely worth a watch at least once. <laughs> Next time, we'll be discussing the Scream franchise. If you have any thoughts to share on the movie, send them in at graveyard underscore slot on Twitter and Instagram, or email us at thegraveyardslot at gmail.com so we can share on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Graveyard Slot. <laughs>